The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 7, Part 4. Equipping the public square for efficient operation of the national voice. Two specific adaptations of local IPNR were required to produce a process of national IPNR that would be workable in the Australian context. These were required to ensure that the IPNR process could deal with two things it had not been required to deal with at the local level. One of the things the process had not been required to deal with was the extraordinary cultural and socio-economic diversity that now prevails within the Australian nation, a diversity which characterises many local communities, but usually to a narrower degree. The other thing that local IPNR did not deal with was the national economy. In regard to the first of these, practitioners of local IPNR knew that it operated efficiently and effectively as a means of integrated planning for social, environmental and governance matters. They also knew the process dealt well with conflicts that might arise from diversity within a given community, not least because IPNR was an essentially inclusive planning process. But while IPNR had apparently worked well at a local scale to deal with and protect diversity and multilateral interests, there was no guarantee that the sort of community engagement relied on in standard IPNR guidelines, most of which was face-to-face interaction supplemented by local surveys, would scale up well to be successful at a national level and still retain the efficiency features inherent in local IPNR. Questions about the feasibility of using IPNR to protect diversity and inclusivity on a national scale therefore became important questions to resolve before it might be expected that IPNR could work well at the national level in a country like Australia, a federation of quite different states governing more than 500 local government areas spread out across a continent. This issue was resolved eventually by development of the IPNR process so that it could make use of the internet to maintain efficiency for those wishing to become involved in integrated planning. The rise of the internet made it possible to establish the potential for a continuous increase in the range of participation, geographically and in terms of topic, and a more inclusive range of participants. But this natural potential of the internet needed to be optimised by the development of mechanisms for efficient use of this new open public square. These included the design of feedback forms and other interaction processes, but in particular, they involved the design of a special structure for the integrated plan itself, one which offered the possibility of a high degree of independence from politics in the formulation of a national vision and the selection of targets and strategies. In other words, it offered Australians the ability to populate their plan by selecting longer-term targets and strategies in a non-politically charged context and without the need to argue on ideological grounds, especially about short-term party political policies. The structure of the plan, which for purposes of pilot testing was given the name Australia Together, 
achieved this by being structured as a map through time, complete with three important things. One, the map contains space for a clear idea of a preferred destination for the nation by 2050, a draft vision statement describing the best destination we can imagine in the 2020s. This draft was based on the responses of Australians in a multiplicity of surveys, research programs and visionary planning exercises that had been conducted since 2010 in which they were asked about or voluntarily described their preferred ideal future. Two, the map also contained a signpost system articulating which routes towards the destination so described are likely to be the safest and which are best avoided because they drag us away from that particular preferred destination or disable other important and safer strategies. And finally, three, the map contained a major new database setting out data on our well-being and security at the start of the planning period and targets for the level of well-being and security that should be acceptable at the end of the planning period, at the latest by 2050. This sort of structure for the plan offered significant advantages in that it left space for as many targets and strategies as may be deemed necessary by electors and the elected, acting collegiately through time. And it functioned as a means of reconciling conflict about the worthiness of strategies by providing everyone with a simple yardstick by which to assess their potential to help the nation realise its preferred aspirations. That yardstick was the vision and the signpost system. In short, it offered an automatic quarrel-settling mechanism. Of course, this mechanism could not guarantee the infallibility of any plan that may result, but there is no doubt that if used properly, it will reduce the policy errors we make as a nation because we do not currently employ any sort of yardstick by which to judge the probable capacity of a policy to propel the nation to its preferred destination. It also helps people explain to themselves why one policy is a better bet than another. This alone is worth billions of dollars in savings and avoided costs. In regard to the second necessary adaptation of IPNR, practitioners knew that the experiment of IPNR had provided no insight into whether a long-term integrated plan could be developed for a local economy, let alone a whole national economy. IPNR at the local level hardly touched on issues economic, except insofar as communities could design plans to stimulate local business development. Because local government in Australia has little, if any, influence in economic development beyond the local government area boundaries, and because long-term integrated economic plans, as opposed to financial plans, simply haven't been developed in Australia by any level of government, researchers found that they were at the very beginning of exploratory research on whether IPNR could be adapted to inject the diverse Australian community into a role in development of national macro and microeconomic reforms and plans, including for, one, fiscal and monetary policy, two, market regulation and competition policy, three, economic structure, for example, the composition of industries and incentives to influence that composition, four, 
employment planning, particularly during economic transitions, five, income and wealth inequality, six, taxation and national wealth distribution, seven, scientific and technological development, eight, urban and regional development, and nine, international trade and rules. These economic issues have not been traditionally viewed as ones that can be dealt with well by everyday Australians, even though they are the people most affected by any incompetence, lack of foresight and conflict of interest that might be displayed at the national level, negative impacts which arise frequently because of a refusal by national governments to develop long-term economic plans. But there is no reason why the Australians of today need be excluded from the process of planning for a stronger national economy, and there is an argument that their accession to that role is simply the next quite logical step in a long history of the evolution of democracy. The history of democracy is in fact the history of gradually enlarging the share of citizenry playing a role in national decision-making, beginning with landowners only, male, white and holding a property title above a certain level, it graduated in the post-Enlightenment world to a much wider composition of influential citizenry as the populace itself became more educated, as information circulated more freely and as the rights of those originally excluded came to be recognised, including women, Indigenous peoples, younger people and non-whites. Citizen involvement in economic planning is therefore not a disruptive or radical undermining of democratic order. It need not be balked at or resisted by anyone seeking social justice and equity. In Australia, given that we have one of the most educated populations in the world, it is simply something that we can take part in as a natural progression in history itself. Indeed, unless we take part in it, we will not be able to develop a viable national economic plan for the simple reason that such a plan must start with something that can only come from the people, a statement of our agreed purpose for the economy. Fortunately, the Australian population is quite capable as an educated and legitimately interested community in articulating what they want their economy to be for. But at present, they do not have an engagement and planning process by which to make their view of the purpose of their economy clear to federal and state governments. As such, they lack any means of injecting themselves into an orderly decision process on the overarching purpose of their own economy. And by extension, parliaments lack the knowledge of the very thing on which a fair and viable economic plan should be based, namely, a specific agreement about the type of nation the people want to build, the country they want to protect, the resources they wish to share and sustain, the level of well-being and security they wish to attain, and the place they aspire to in international citizenry. Recognising that within the framework of national IPNR, a national economy was not an end in itself, but merely a means of building a preferred society, environment and democracy, in which every diverse individual and group could find a place of well-being and security, it became apparent that the mechanics of a national long-term economic plan were in fact quite straightforward and that the process of building a national economic plan was likely to be quite an accessible one for Australians wishing to build a better future for everyone, 
one in which everyone acknowledged that the full diversity of talents among Australians would need to be utilised to ensure economic success sufficient to sustain diverse aspirations. Taking all this into account, it emerged that only small adjustments were required in local IPNR to make it fit for purpose in a public square at the national level. It was only a small step to develop a workable draft structure for a long-term national plan, integrating social, environmental, economic and governance objectives and strategies capable of supporting and indeed capitalising on diverse aspirations. And it was only a small step to develop an efficient engagement process capable of drawing diverse Australians into the centre of strategic decision-making and planning for their future. In effect, all that was required was to make these two adjustments and thereby insert a simple extra step into the existing cycle of democratic elections, that step being inclusive, integrated planning and reporting. Of course, it was expected that this rendition of national IPNR was likely to be more complicated in delivery than it was in concept. Complicated, that is, for the facilitators of engagement and participation in planning, not for the users within the community itself. Significant upskilling will be required for those who may be charged with ensuring that community engagement for development of a national integrated long-term plan, and for reporting on it, is run in a fully open and inclusive but orderly and efficient framework. And these facilitators of this new public long-term planning space will themselves need to be fully supported by parliaments, parliaments that understand that in a country where the people wish to express their sovereign will and their purpose in coming together, they must be enabled to do so in an orderly and inclusive manner as independent, self-determining people. This means there should be no obstruction by parliaments or executive governments of that process for expression. By extension, that means that the national voice, or more accurately, the process by which it may be legitimately expressed, should be enshrined in the Constitution as a right of the people, a right which is as important as any other civil and political right. It also means that when elected members of Parliament swear to uphold the Constitution, they cannot be mistaken about the full import of their oath and the nature of their obligations under it. If this right of the people to expression of their national voice is enshrined in the people's own constitution, it will resolve the problem I spoke of in chapters 3 and 5 about the failure of the Australian people to specify what they want their parliaments to be loyal to. It should remove much, if not all, of any ambiguity that may still exist about the nature of the sovereign will of the Australian people and clarify at last what parliamentarians are actually swearing to be loyal to when they take an oath similar to that suggested by the Australian Republican movement that, quote, I will be loyal to the Commonwealth of Australia and the Australian people whose constitution and laws I shall uphold, unquote. If this right to a national voice is present, and if it results in a well-constructed specification of the nation's will for the future, those who are privileged by elections cannot be mistaken about what they are swearing to uphold. Politicians are always talking about the need for national conversations 
particularly on issues like taxation, the Indigenous voice and the Republic. But they never give themselves or us a formal process in which to have those conversations. Nor do they give up their jealous guard on some other issues which affect our national interests and security. There are some topics, such as war powers and strategic defence posture, which desperately need community conversation, but which in the rise of the secret state have been withdrawn completely from the purview of those who stand to lose the most in situations of executive eagerness for war. But were parliaments to countenance the idea that the people are the only legitimate source of power and that their primary responsibility is to do the people's will, then an amazing set of new benefits would open up for everyone, the elected included. Everyone would have a far greater prospect of being able to secure a better future. It will be neither difficult nor expensive to equip this new public square so that it can operate inclusively and efficiently to secure the interests of such a diverse nation. What is required is a constitutional specification of the people's national voice as a right, a process for expression of the voice, and a suitably independent institution for facilitation of the engagement necessary to ensure that the people of Australia can, one, assemble their voice in an open, accessible, inclusive and well-resourced forum, two, monitor their nation's progress toward their preferred future, and three, hold themselves and their parliaments to account for making that future a reality. But before I suggest the possible wording of a starting draft of a constitutionally enshrined process for expression of the people's national voice, I would like to set out two major benefits that Australia can reap from the establishment of that process. One of those is that such a voice would position non-Indigenous Australians to achieve a lasting reconciliation with Indigenous Australians and for the Australian state to achieve a truly just reconciliation with First Nations as coexistent sovereignties. The second is that a national people's voice would enable Australia to fairly finance a sustainable future in the age of climate change.